Welcome to Embers and Wind. Are you feeling a calling to serve? What if answering this calling unleashes from deep within you leadership potential? I'm your podcast host, Keith Weedman. Blended three decades experience with knowledge from multiple disciplines to unleash hidden potential in others. In this weekly podcast, my distinguished guests and I will share what fuels us and how we serve. You will feel a gentle wind on the embers of service that glow within you. You will receive kindling for your capabilities and knowledge to build skills. You can utilize this gentle wind to ignite the kindling. You will be guided to do this for people you lead and serve. You can apply what you learn with people you love. Get ready to feel the gentle wind. As a former engineering manager, today's guest knows both the hard and soft side of leadership. Throughout his 22 years in engineering, he's also served as a trainer to Fortune 500 organizations, as well as influenced and managed company-wide change management activities. He's an ICF professional certified coach, a TEDx speaker, a trained facilitator, along with the founder of multiple Toastmasters public speaking clubs. He specializes in helping introvert leaders find their voice so they can create impact and leave positive impression without having to pretend. He has over 100 one-to-one coaching clients, in addition to corporate clients such as Black Locus, James Edwards, Qualcomm, and Austin Pellet Company. He holds an MS in material science and a BS in physics. The title of this episode is Stepping Past the Comfortable and the Familiar. Please join me in welcoming Stephen English. Welcome, Stephen. Hey, thank you so much, Keith. Why did you select this title for your episode? Stepping Past the Comfortable and the Familiar. So many people, including myself, we live in that comfortable and familiar. And when I look back on the last three years, it actually, it actually goes even further back now that I think about it. There were a lot of steps where I was stepping past the comfortable and the familiar. As the end of my biography introduction goes, you know, my background is in science. I, I was a product and process control engineer, product quality and reliability engineer, reliability engineer, all of that in the semiconductor industry for all those years. And what would have been the default would have been to just stick around in it and not allow myself to express what I really, really felt was the gift that I was given. That's why I, I, I chose that is that I, I feel like if we could have a conversation that's going to serve somebody, I want to make that the cornerstone because I know there's so many people out there who have talents and passions and characteristics that are just not expressed because they are stuck in the comfortable and the familiar. Makes sense. So who can benefit from stepping past the comfortable and the familiar? Generically, I could say anyone. However, I feel like somebody's going to be in a certain spot in their life where they're going to want to step past the comfortable and the familiar. Maybe it's their midlife. For me, that's where it was. Maybe it's their you know, they're coming to the end of their career, their formal career, and they want an act too. And maybe they're retiring early, or maybe even if they're 
you know, young and they figured out, man, this is not the career or the life that I really, really want. You know, in a, in a certain regard, it's, it's anyone, but it's more of a, a state of mind. They know there's more for them and they are ready to take certain steps. How can those who join this conversation benefit from your experience, Steve? Well, I guess it's twofold. One, they could be inspired by parts of my story. And then the other part of that might be that they can see some simple first steps that they can take uh, as a result of listening to this episode. So you talked about first steps and you had some first steps too. What were your first steps? I would say it was a little bit of a random walk instead of just a straight line of steps. At a certain point, there was an acceptance that I, I was not going in the direction that I wanted and that my life, it wasn't satisfying to me at a core level. And so first thing is really just that awareness, really maybe step one is that awareness, like, hey, here's where I really am. Then I had to take a couple of, let's say, investigative actions. And, and naturally, given that I had been in corporate for so long, the first thing that came along was, oh, go get an MBA. So as a result, I went and I applied to a couple of MBA programs. I went through the interviewing. I looked at the courses. I looked at the syllabus. And then at a certain point, there was a decision to be made. And I, I decided not to go that direction. So there was one investigation, right? I went down that, that alley, saw that it wasn't for me, closed that. Then another one that I had thought a lot about was becoming a Six Sigma and Lean consultant. So I reached out to a mentor, uh, this gentleman by the name of Forrest Brayfogel, which anybody who's listening to this who is a Six Sigma black belt or knows anything about Six Sigma is going to recognize that name. He wrote pretty much the Bible. Uh, it's Implementing Six Sigma. It's a thousand page book. And for most people who maybe even as early as 1998, 1999, looking at Six Sigma, they would have owned a copy of that book. I was very fortunate to have an opportunity to meet with him. And I was playing hooky one day from work and I decided to reach out to him and his, his assistant monitors his uh, LinkedIn. And she was kind enough to set up a First, I was asking for just like a coffee with the guy. And then I ended up having happy hour with him and, you know, bought him a couple of glasses of wine and some uh, tuna pokes and got to really get the true story around what being a Six Sigma and lean consultant looked like. By the end of the conversation, I decided it wasn't for me. Another step <clears throat> along the way, and you had him on your podcast was uh, Bruce Hodes. And you've known Bruce yes. since the mid eighties. Yes. I met Bruce a little bit after you met Bruce. And so my uncle Bruce is a consultant and he does a lot of strategic planning, does a lot of organizational development, the softer side of the consulting. So he's not about the spreadsheets and the numbers and, uh, you know, the financial side so much as really about the people. And I asked him for some, some advice. And I ended up courageously asking him, hey, would you be okay if I did a ride along with you? And I flew out to San Diego. I spent the day with him and his customer. And that was uh, eye-opening. That was one of them where I was like, wow, I can totally do this. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of like the, the three little bears thing, right? Like one was too hard. One was too soft. One was just right. Um, maybe I'm mixing up my fairy tales, but you get the idea, uh-huh. right? Like I finally yes. got there. I finally got to one. I said, Ooh, I can do that. People consulting. And then it continued to evolve. And then I met another person who I, her, her name is Catherine Savage. So Catherine was a executive in the electronics industry. And I met up with her one day and talked to her about coaching. Mm-hmm. So I started to find like this, this spot, right? Like it was a matter of uh, maybe triangulation, right? Like saying, okay, this isn't for me. This isn't for me. This, yeah. And then this other thing, yeah. And of course I had already done a lot of training. So I could add that. Mm-hmm. I had done training since 2003 in corporate. So I knew that that was definitely going to be another tool in the toolbox. So those are some first steps, right? Like for, and then even that going back to the first one of the awareness and again, credit to Bruce, Bruce, after I had, had gotten my divorce and was really deep into my midlife crisis, mm-hmm. he said, you should go to landmark, uh, landmark forum. And I did landmark forum. So first was landmark forum, created the awareness, really started to see some things bubble up. Then I had to go out and, and investigate. And so I had those conversations with some of those people. And it was more than conversations. You know, I did, like I said, I did a ride along and I, I applied for programs. I, I, I did all kinds of things uh, as, as first steps. And then at a certain point, yeah, you had to commit. And in a way, it's like you're committing not your entire life. You're committing to do a prototype. And that's what I did. I, I prototyped in a way. I, I said, while I'm still doing my job as a product quality and reliability engineer, I'm going to go out and coach some people. I'm going to go out and teach a class and see how that felt. So those are some of the, the big initial steps that I had to take. And at some point you chose to become an ICF professional certified coach. For yeah. those who maybe joined this conversation who don't know what that is, please explain that. Yeah. So ICF is International Coach Federation. It's, it's basically, it's the professional body for coaches. Just like if you were a, a quality engineer, you would be American Society of Quality Certified. If you were a um, automotive engineer, you'd be like ASE certified. The International Coach Federation is the governing body over all coaches, and they ensure that there's a, a level of competency that those who are certified have maintained. Let's face it, coaching is the wild, wild west. Anyone can put up the shingle of, hey, I'm a coach. They can go on to LinkedIn or, or their social media and tell everybody they're a coach and there's really nothing that is stopping them. And that's, that's both liberating. It was funny that I think Rich Litvin, one of my, my coaching mentors, he said, you know, coaching has like the lowest bar for entry, but the highest bar for success. So there's no bar for entry, really. Anybody can become one, but those who want to ensure that they are as effective as possible as coaches, I believe will seek some kind of learning. It doesn't have to be a certification. Now, and the reason I say that is because there are people out there who they can learn the competencies, they can go to coaching programs, they can buy books, they can read, they can coach, they can get more feedback from coaches, they can do mentor coaching where somebody is letting them coach a person who is a great coach and then that great coach gives them feedback. So you can get great without being an ICF certified coach. I By no right. means am I saying that you know, cause I'm sure if I said that, if I told you on this podcast, like the only good coaches in the world are ICF, PCCs and MCCs, I'd get hate mail. 
But the point is, is that I believe that to meet a certain baseline level of skill, that that certification route is very helpful. And so what PCC is, so there's, there's three levels, there's ACC, Associate Certified Coach, PCC, Professional Certified Coach, and then MCC, Master Certified Coach. So I'm in the middle, PCC, you have to have a certain number of training hours, you have to have 500 hours of coaching experience, I have that. And then you have to have a certain number of mentor coaching hours. You have to pass the tests and all kinds of stuff like that. So that's what it means to be an ICF professional certified coach. Thank you for sharing that. And I know that you're very familiar with Toastmasters. Mm. Tell us about Toastmasters and how Toastmasters influenced you. How much time do we have? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Toastmasters was a game changer for me. I you know, in high school, I was incredibly shy and reserved and didn't want to talk to people, especially on a stage that scared the living bejeebus out of me. As we both know, public speaking is the number one fear. Maybe it's gotten, you know, pushed down after COVID or, or other, you know, man-made fears, but still public speaking, when I talk to people, they are very, very frightened about getting on stage and speaking. As a result, as I went through my career, I I started to blossom, started to speak without a whole lot of support. And then in 2003, I started teaching effective presentation skills. Do not know why they picked me. I honestly cannot remember what it was that ST University, so I worked for ST Microelectronics. They had this learning and development arm called ST University. They picked me to teach that class. Then in 2008, I joined a Toastmasters club at my company. And I was like, Oh my goodness. So wait a minute, all that stuff that we were doing in the classroom, we can practice those skills here in a consequence free supportive environment. And let me, let me actually back away from that. Maybe let me say it this way, consequence free, evaluative and supportive environment. Let me add that evaluative in the middle, because that's a key thing, as you know, as well as a, as a, Toastmaster and a person who's been in it for a very long time and a very accomplished speaker, you know that, you know, steel sharpens steel, right? And that we get better by having other speakers who are really great speakers talk to us about our speaking. So Toastmasters has been massively transformative for me in that I had a stage and to have a stage, I believe it's a game changer. In fact, I'm trying to remember the name of the gentleman there was a gentleman who, who won, I think he was the 2018 Toastmasters International or 2020, 20, I forget the year. Uh, he came and he spoke at our district, District 55, and his name is, is uh, escaping me. He said, he just said, stage time, stage time, stage time. If somebody says to you, how can I get better as a speaker? That's the answer. It's been absolutely amazing. I would say, and, and you, you and I have had conversations about it before, not only is it the most cost-effective personal development activity that you can undertake because it's super cheap. It's like the cost of two cups of coffee a month. Right. It's also a great way to become a leader because there are so many leadership opportunities within Toastmasters that if you had worked to do those things in a corporate environment, and then you made a misstep, it would have a consequence. In Toastmasters, big deal. It's just all for your growth. And uh, at least that's my philosophy around it. And I would recommend any listener today to go join Toastmasters, get involved, whether or not it's virtual or if they're doing hybrid meetings, 
go join it because it's it's going to change your career trajectory. It could change your life trajectory. If you're a person mm-hmm. who is shy speaking around members of the gender that you wish to attract, uh, <laughs> I could tell you that uh, because I certainly was. So yeah, like I said, how long do you have to talk about Toastmasters? I could talk <laughs> about it for a long time, Keith. I think this is perfect. Thank you for sharing that, <laughs> Stephen. But let's focus on TEDx. Mm-hmm. And let's focus specifically on finding joy by disappointing others. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I was, wow. Okay, so I'll take you back just a little bit in time to when I first saw Julian Treasure and Amy Cuddy on the TED stage. So they're on TED stage. And I jokingly say, TED is like the Lexus to TEDx as the Toyota, uh, because TEDx, they have many, many more stages. Uh, however, I saw those two. Julian Treasure, amazing speaker, amazing speaker about the topic of speaking. And then of course, Amy Cuddy, who came along with the connection between mind and body and how our posture, actually our posture, our body language actually changes the chemistry of our body. She has a great, great speech. I would watch both of those TED Mm -hmm. speakers uh, for anybody who's listening, go look them up. What happened was since probably 2013, I've 2014, I've had Ted on my mind. Mm-hmm. And I remember writing on this whiteboard that's next to me in 2017, deliver Ted talk by 2021. Maybe it was even 2018, but I know I had this like far off, oh, someday I'll do this mm-hmm. dream. And then I think what happened for me was that I kept looking at it and going, okay, the the TEDx is about a big idea. And I kept thinking to myself, I don't have a big enough idea. I don't have a big enough idea. And I kept disqualifying myself from it. Then I had an opportunity to join a program to do a TEDx speaker program. And I was already free from the confines of judgment of corporate America. So I, years ago, I already had this idea about a speech that would be so vulnerable. <laughs> it would set almost a, I wouldn't call it a high watermark, but definitely in the cornucopia of TEDx talks, people would go, yeah, yeah, that's pretty damn vulnerable. And I knew that it would serve people. I knew that it would serve a lot of different people. So finding joy by disappointing others. So I was attempting to come up with both a concise, polarizing, and relevant topic. That's why I use that polarization there of finding joy by disappointing others. I thought it would capture the audience's attention. And what I did was I, spoiler alert, I don't want to tell people the whole speech because I really do want people to watch it uh, and comment on it and share it with their friends and all of the above, is that I saw how my alcoholism was a result of my desire to cope with the pain of being a people pleaser. And just so much of my life was about making other people happy. And you can't go through a life like that where you're constantly putting your own needs to the back burner without building up some resentment. And resentments are, are like poison that you drink expecting the other person to get sick. The only problem is I was the one getting sick. And the only way that I could medicate that sickness was through alcohol. And it took me through a hell that I allowed, that I actively pursued starting in 2007. I I often say that I had a pilot light for alcoholism and then going to Korea for five weeks 
was like dumping gasoline on it. Anyhow, that's kind of like three stories in one. But yeah, my TEDx, I had a, a desire for a very long time to do that. And then I finally saw that my story was unique enough and that it could serve many different people, whether or not their people were a people pleaser, whether or not the person was an alcoholic, or if a person just didn't know what their real purpose was, that I thought that this speech could serve them. So there are three steps you talk about in your speech to find joy. Yeah. What are those three steps? You know, I had to, I had to condense it down to three steps. You, you know, you were asking me about three steps of my journey and I distilled that down to finding out what that delicious future vision looks like. And that comes to you from allowing yourself to feel the feelings that point you toward that future. So in other words, when you do something, you feel more energy than when you started, right? Like whatever it might be, maybe it's volunteering, or maybe it's making some kind of craft, or maybe it's coaching, or maybe it's teaching a class, or maybe it's solving a problem, whatever it is. Once you've done it, you've got more energy than when you started, then that's a, that's a, a feeling that can point you in the direction of what your delicious future vision can be. So that's step one, right? Figure out where you really want to be and that figuring out that's, that's going to take you some time. The next one is find the people around you who can help you with that. Maybe that's that tribe of mentors. So these are the people who maybe they've already attained that thing and, and get, get close to them. And, and this is where that whole disappointing others piece kicks in is that by getting close to them, you're going to be pushing away some other folks. Let's say, for example, you have some friends in your universe that are, they're negative. They're always telling you what can go wrong. They're not bringing much to the table in terms of enlivening you. Then, you know, you're going to shut those people out. Uh, maybe it's, maybe it's going to be a, a difficult conversation of saying, Hey, this isn't working for me. Or maybe it's going to be just simply not responding to messages in a very, very timely fashion or being very short not short meaning mean, but just being, having very brief responses and then just not being available. And eventually those people will fall away. Or you're so busy hanging out with those people that are enlivening you and that are on the same path and all that. You just don't have time for those other people. So find that tribe of mentors. And then the last piece is really, really important is, is get some results because that those results so, you know, take action, right? So, so now you've got this vision, you've got these great people around you who have been there, done that, so to speak. Now you, you know what the actions are that you need to do, go do them. And what that does is when you take action, you start to motivate yourself for more action. So it becomes this uh, virtuous cycle. So there's somebody you've coached who has as an addiction issue. Oh yeah. Share about your experience working with somebody with addiction. This is the funny thing is that no one has come to the coaching conversation, the first coaching conversation, let's put it that way, or the enrollment conversation saying, I read your story, or I looked at your TEDx, or I, I saw some content where you were talking about recovery, and I want to talk to you about recovery. We don't get there until there's been a really, really strong sense of trust opened up. So once that channel is open, oh boy, the first one that comes to mind is there was a, a woman who I started working with who it was more about career in the beginning and possibly leaving her company or figuring out ways to reduce her stress associated with the way things were going at work. And then even before she paid me, 
So this was just in our enrollment conversations before she finally committed to the coaching. She told me, she said, you know what I do is for four nights a week, I drink two bottles of wine and I really want to stop that. And so we talked through it. We talked about, you know, why it's important to do that, what she could do in place of, if that doesn't work, what would she do? If those things that she was going to put in place of the drinking of the wine, if those were ineffective, what was her kind of like escalation plan? And it was, it was really remarkable how, in her case, you, you know, everybody's alcoholism looks different. You know, some people are where they're waking up in the morning and they're on a constant cycle of, of basically having a certain amount of blood alcohol content. And then there's some other folks who, you know, they're steady drinkers, they're drinking, you know, to a point that they're just, they're not comfortable with. They see how it's affecting them. They see how it's maybe driving the so social isolation, which was horrible throughout this pandemic, or it's driving some health issues. So whatever it is, once we surface that, that can be a lever arm for change. So in her case, it was really, really quick. I had another client who I stay very, very close with my clients and I keep an open channel. I'm not, you know, sometimes people think about coaching and they think about, like counseling and therapy where, okay, on Tuesday, I speak to my therapist or my psychologist for an hour. And then between sessions, you don't have an open channel with them. Right. In the case of coaching, at least the way I do, I keep an open channel with folks because I want to be there for them. And I want to be of service. I want to know about their successes. I want to know about their challenges because it, then it makes the next coaching conversation just that much more rich. And I'm also able to serve them and by meeting them where they're at. And so I had one client reach out to me one night and it was amazing how, you know, it takes one to know one. She was messaging me and I go, oh my God, she's drunk. I was like, I'm being drunk texted. And I could just see it in the words. And I, and I responded a couple of times, you know, and, and with kindness and compassion, but not calling her out, not calling her out at all. Cause I knew that that was not the time. And she said to me, she goes, I bet you think I should go to AA. And I just left that. I left that alone. Because I know deep, deep, deep down that if you go into recovery for someone else, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It, it, you have to do this for yourself. Now you can have as other motivations, like I know by me doing this, I'm going to be able to help these other people, or I know I'm going to have better relationships, but it's all got to be centered on me. It has to be I focused, like I am no longer a drinker for me. So those are, you know, just a couple of examples, whether or not it's at the beginning of the coaching relationship in the middle, people will eventually get down to the nitty gritty, so to speak. And yeah. uh, that's, that's been incredibly rewarding. And I, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm at networking events and they'll say like, what's your biggest client win? And yeah, I mean, I could talk about how I helped a guy negotiate his salary from 150K mm -hmm. a year to 190K a year. Yeah, that's great. It's very tangible. It's there's return on investment. There's all that, but the intangible of helping somebody become what's called a transitional character for their family. So a transitional character is the person who breaks a cycle in their family tree. So if, if it's been alcoholic, 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 alcoholic sure. with, from great granddad on down, and then this person now breaks that cycle, to me, that's infinitely more rewarding. And I know from my own experience that you respect AA and you utilize AA, I think, in your work. True. I will say this, and I, and I say this with the utmost respect. I almost held back from saying the direct quote from the mm -hmm. person because I didn't necessarily want to pull 
because of the 11th tradition mm -hmm. to re remain uh, anonymous at the level of press, radio, and film. I don't use it formally. There's principles. So at the 50,000 foot level, if you go, let's say, if you go back in time to the mid thirties, mm -hmm. when the first 100 were creating the big book mm -hmm. and creating the program of recovery, they drew that from all kinds of other places. Right. So to say that I use it, it would be a little bit of a misnomer. It's that there are principles and there are mm -hmm. tools, but they are not unique to AA. And so, so I, I think if I were to, to draw a line, like I don't sit there with AA literature uh, in coaching conversations. So I, I, I draw a pretty sure. distinct line. Now, if a client says to me, I want to work on my alcoholism and they are an active alcoholic, I will recommend they go and sure. seek help from some, any kind of recovery program. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. there's so many of them now, and that's even an interesting side to it too, is that back in the thirties and forties to be an alcoholic, well, number one, and back in that time, AA was really built for the low bottom alcoholic because people who were what we would call nowadays a high bottom alcoholic, that's a person who is still successful in their career. They may have some problems in their relationships, but you know, life overall looks pretty darn good looking, you know, from the outside. Right. Those people weren't looking for help back then. Nowadays, people have become so awake to this because it's it's very common knowledge about addiction that the quote unquote high bottom alcoholic is is looking for help and they're be getting help through many different, you know, smart recovery, uh, AA, I forget some of the other ones off the top of my head, but there are many different ways of getting mm -hmm. uh, help. It just all depends on you know, what it is that, what works for you. Some people have a problem with the, the term higher power and God. And so AA is a little bit uh, of a turnoff for them. Sure. Now I know you also focus on introverted leaders and helping them find their voice. Yeah. So tell us more about that. So coming from the industry that I worked in, so the semiconductor industry, I was around a lot of introverts. And I also, in my early, early years, I exhibited the the very strong signs of introversion, right? So being reserved, being more quiet, being more in my head and less verbal. I have actually tested INFP and ENFP throughout the years, right? You throw a Myers-Briggs at me, an MBTI, I'm depending on the day, I may flip back and forth. So I'm, I'm kind of an right. ambivert in that regard. I know deep, deep down that there is an untapped gold mine out mm -hmm. there, not for me, but for them, for those introverts, like in their head, they have an untapped gold mine that if, and when they decide that they want to share it. And then if, and when they decide they're ready to put in the effort and invest in themselves, both the time and the money to either get coaching, training, whatever it might be or just simply go out there and baby step their way through it. That may take them a long time. They're going to get that great idea that they have inside of them out into the world. Yes. And so I believe that quiet voices shake the foundation of industries. And we've seen this time and time again, whether it be Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, list, list goes on and on tons of introverts who were able to finally tap into that voice that they have yes. that has been just dormant or unexercised. You know, it's fun to watch like Elon Musk. It's amazing to see how, how comfortable he is. 
obviously it's not always been like that. Obviously he's built up the confidence. He's built up the skill. He's built up the competence now to just express himself whatever way he wants. I mean, even I remember watching him on Saturday Night Live and I was like, well, it was, it was, it was a mix of, can I see the Asperger's or can I see the introversion? But it was still, you could see a little bit of the remnants of it with yes. some of the ways he, he hesitated. And now I'm doing it too, because I'm empathizing. Some of the ways he hesitated with the words and also some just like little, I wouldn't call them ticks, but just motions that were certainly weren't something that he planned. So uh, I just feel like having worked in that environment in the technology world, there are so many folks who have great ideas and they just need to bring them out. Thank you for sharing that. And there's somebody who's joined this conversation today, Stephen, and they want to stay connected with you. How can they stay connected with you? Yes. So I believe in the show notes, you're going to have my link tree. So I would say, depending on whether or not they are a Facebook person or a LinkedIn person, just connect with me. I have both of those links there. I also have the link to my website mm -hmm. where they can contact me message and I'll reach back out to them and connect with them. So really there's a whole bunch of different ways that sure. people can connect with me. And I will put that in, in the show notes. And there's somebody who wants to learn more from you who's joined this conversation. How can they learn more from you, Stephen? I have on my website, so go to www.steven, with a V, stephenenglish.net. And right there at the top of the page, there is an opt-in for a workbook on confidence. And I know confidence is something that so many introverts and extroverts as well, but more so introverts, they really could benefit by creating more of that confidence in their life. And so I have a gift for anybody who would like to download that. So they just uh, send me a message there. Excellent. Anything else you want to say before we close this episode? Stephen, this has been a great episode. I'm ready to connect with you. I'm ready <laughs> well, to learn I'm, more from you. I'm glad we're connected. I mean, first, first and foremost, so thank you. You know, if, having known you over uh -huh. the, I think probably year and a half, I, if, if yes. I'm correct, that we've known each other. I, it's, it's great to see everything that you're creating. I love watching you do your Facebook lives. I love watching you do this podcast, which takes a lot of courage, takes a lot of consistency and commitment to create it. And so I'm, I have a lot of gratitude for you. I thank you and thank the listeners. You know, if you've, if you've taken the time to sit down and listen to this, then you've already taken a first step, you know, maybe that's step zero on moving through that path of creating a life that you, you really, really love. And so I, I, I thank the listener and, and thank you, Keith. So. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for joining us today for this conversation on Embers and Wind. And thank, thank you. you also for joining this conversation today. We look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of Embers and Wind. If you enjoyed today, please come back next week. Please also share this episode with a friend. If you've not already subscribed to Embers and Wind, rated this podcast, and written a review, please do this now. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can reach me directly at embersandwind.net. Thank you again for joining us.